I'm in my house. I'm hearing helicopters over my head. Consistently, police monitoring civilians who are protesting. I am turning on the news and seeing a policeman outside of my house push a woman to the curb and fracturing her skull. You know what I mean? Like, this is right outside my door. And I had to do something. I have this frustration of when people are brutalized or killed or become victimized, there's a lot of attention put on the victims versus the victimizer. So in that moment, I was like, I want to show what white supremacy looks like from my point of view. Right. This is where we still are. And as we accept these institutions or just they're like, we don't have a choice. The fact is we do. We have a choice in all of the ways that we are governed and and standing up and using our skill sets um, is incredibly important. All of that engagement is the whole point. Exactly. Right. Art is used in political change. It has this incredibly unique capacity to provide a platform for the whole community to represent their experiences and aspirations. And you get to see it all. It comes on the front street, right? It brings communities together to engage in challenging conversations. Period. You know, my life has brought me to places and put me in contact with people who inspire me and trust me to to contribute to contribute to their art. So yeah. I feel like Forrest Gump. You know what I mean? I just get to, <laughs> yeah, I get to be in some incredible scenarios. I'm like, yo, yeah, like if I'd have told the young me, I'd be like, nah, like you're crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> so, very, very fortunate. When things get darkest, we must be our brightest. We must love our hardest. You're listening to better. And I'm your host, Mark Brand. I deeply believe that everyone has the power to leave the planet a better place than they found it. In my decades of frontline work, I've seen it happen against all odds in the toughest corners of the world. This show was created as a guide to share stories of resilience and hope from the brightest individuals who have overcome challenges we all face to help us all envision and build a better life. Every week, my incredible guests and I will give you access to the conversations we've been having behind closed doors, away from stages, and away from traditional media. Until now, we share this space with the explicit intention to empower you to be your biggest, brightest, most beautiful self, so we can build a better world together. Welcome to Better. Today, I have the distinct pleasure and honor of hosting my friend, Julian Alexander. Julian is one of the most prolific cultural designers. And I say that specifically because his work spans over three decades, but has also been a cornerstone of the biggest musical genre on the planet, hip hop and rap. And outside of that has lent itself to so much political commentary that you may have seen and do not know. Chances are, If you have consumed hip-hop music in your life whatsoever, you have touched one of his products, you have been influenced to maybe purchase one or to dig deeper. But today we're going to talk about all of those things and the importance of design in this world and particularly in the way that we are being fed so many different messages, how important it is to get some of them right. Julian, welcome. Thank you, man. Um, I'm a little beside myself. Based on the intro, I really appreciate it, and, and thank you for wording it that way, because if you asked me to say who I was, I would come way short of that. Well, well, that's what I'm doing right now. So the next part is, you just revealed the next question, which is, how do you introduce yourself these days? Right now, I am making a point of introducing myself as an artist versus mm-hmm. um, graphic designer. Um, I don't really see a difference between the two, but many other people do. 
Um, and I think, you know, the term graphic design is often limited to who your clients are, or what you've been working on versus your perspective and your creative contribution. So I'm leading with artists. And when people ask for more, I'll speak a little bit about my history, but I'm also making a point of um, <clears throat> delving deeper into my own personal work and expression and using the skill set that I've developed over the, the period of time that you referenced and in speaking to what I find important. Um, so in addition to that, you know, I'm a I'm a father, I'm a friend, I'm a husband, I'm, I'm many, many things. Um, but that, that's kind of how I sum up who I am. I love that. And as, as somebody who's grateful to experience your friendship, I can, I can co-sign all the rest of that. And also to experience your art as, as a fan um, for so very long. So just to give the audience some context, because I'm really excited to build into the way that you use art as a weapon. And I, I use that word very specifically today. Um, and also from within inside, I feel like you get access and you have used your skill set and your brand awareness and the integrity of your work to be a Trojan horse into some of the bigger brands to put some messaging across that I think might have been too risque for all of that. So let's start with the start, man. Why do you become a designer? Why do you become an artist? What, what leads you there? So I've always been an artist, um, you know, like just in terms of expressing myself as a child. Like I, I remember um, my earliest memories include like, you know, my best gift I ever got as a kid was like my uncle brought me this like drawing table and I would just spend mm. forever at it. You know what I mean? Like the little, I don't know, play school, fishing, or whatever it was, but it, it stands out distinct. So I think um, <clears throat> my, that, Part of me has always been there. And I remember, you know, I would play sports with friends and things like that as a kid, play basketball, baseball. It was to be with my friends, but left to my own devices. I'm in the house writing graffiti and drawing. Like, I would spend my time drawing, and I, I had friends who I would draw with as well. So that's always been there. But um, it felt, you know, as I went to school, I'm a product of an immigrant family. You know what I mean? They're like, you got to go to, I'm the one, I'm the firstborn in my generation and my mother, I'm first generation American and firstborn on my mother's side of the family. Right. So they're just like, you got to go to college. You got to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever. So art was always something I did, but it always seemed like a hobby to me. So when I graduated high school, I went to university of Connecticut for a year and there I met a teacher. I took a drawing class. I don't know what I want to do. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm just taking classes. But I would do things like, um, specifically, she had us draw bell peppers as still lives. Okay. And I would draw it like in the bottom corner of the paper, like halfway off the page. And I would just keep doing things like that. And she was like, I think you'd be good at graphic design. I was like, what's that? <laughs> you know, and she explained it to me. And she was like, if you're interested, like, I think you really would be good at this. And I talked to her about wanting to pursue art. And she was like, I'll help you build a portfolio if you want to apply to some art schools. And that changed the course of my life completely. Oh, her name is Pam Stockmore. And she um, really gave me the tools to go home and be like, look, I want to pursue this art thing, but I also, I'm not going to be a starving artist. Like making a living as an artist is a completely foreign concept. To me, to be fair, so to be fair, it was definitely foreign to my family. So right. I, I was able to let them know I was serious about something. I could see a future in it. Um, I would have the stability that they wanted for me, but I could also pursue my dreams and, and that put me on that course. And, and once I identified that's what I wanted to do, I 
I've loved music my entire life. And I was like, I want to design album covers. Once I figured out graphic design is this, I'm like, somebody's doing that. And I want it to be me. Yeah, there it is. And what I'm hearing you say, and what I've got to hear you say many times, is that support and awareness being seen in that moment might seem minimal. But I have always believed that a teacher or a mentor's great job is to be aware of when somebody's critically different and gifted. And to call that out and to bring it into their awareness, because not for that critical moment, then what happens, right? The trajectory yeah. may be very, very different. But then to double it down, particularly with an immigrant family and be like, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna draw for a living. And they're like, we didn't come all the way over here to do this. <laughs> but in your instance, it was like, cool. And, and, you know, the conviction that you carried through your work obviously started at day dot. It's like, yeah. here, here we are and this is what we're doing. And I tell you. The immediate reaction was not cool, okay, but we okay. got there. That's the end result. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it was never like, what? Like, I mean, you know, to pay for art school just seems like, you know, whatever. But yes, I found that support. My family was supportive right. of what I was doing. But it, it, it took, I had to sell them on it. You know? <laughs> I had to use all of my skills to did, make this possible. Did you put together a visual representation of the trajectory of what was going to happen? You draw it out for them and be no, like, there was, all right. There was no key point, keynote <laughs> presentation. <laughs> it wasn't there. So listen, you know, I think two of the works that you're most known for and that, you know, I often use to introduce you when we're out with friends is a, you redefine the way that we looked at visual imagery through hip hop covers uh, with 50 Cent's campaign for Get Rich or Die Trying, um, in which you really sat with him and spent time. And then understood that while the words get rich or die trying are easily translatable, that what you interpreted and what he interpreted and what I interpret are very different things. And putting yourself aside as somebody who works with artists and is able to then center and accelerate that, that brand was critical and that visual was critical into his success. What does that process look like for you versus, you know, an art department just sending you images and a bio and a track listing and being like, go for it. Like, what did that particular process look like? So although that's the first time people saw our work together on that scale, that wasn't the beginning of the relationship I had with 50. Right. Have present tense. Um, so because, he, he, you know, he did many things that changed my life and gave me support. So I view him as a friend eternally. Um, <clears throat> So the thing is, I got to know him. I, I, could, I remember vividly the first time I met him. I remember introducing myself to him in an elevator and, and just talking to him and getting to know him. And he had an album before Get Rich or Die Trying when he was signed to Columbia, which is a label under Sony, where I worked. And I was assigned to him as his art director. And that album was called Power of the Dollar. That's right. And it's where How to Rob, that was on that mm -hmm. album. And so we worked together and we had a history and we, we built a real relationship. And his latest book that he put, put out, he talks about coming and spending time with me at my office and asking me, like, what are you doing? How are you doing this? So he, we had a great relationship and mutual respect and, and a friendship. So at that point, when it was time to move forward and, and that album is his first commercial release, but he was like, super hot at that period because of the mixtapes and what he had done to, you know, position himself for the success that he has today. And, you know, I just got a good understanding of who he is, what his music is, like just the, 
the character and spirit of it. And I think what you see is a matter of not only my vision, um, it's in there, it's his vision, it's our creative partners. And, you know, it's, it's the culmination of us working really hard together to make something that's bigger than what any of us could do individually. What's so beautiful about what you just said is it's so counterintuitive to the way that most stuff is done. You know what I mean? I know it seems very normal for you and that's why you are who you are, not only as a business person, but as a human. But that is so counterintuitive, right? We, we are assigned somebody in these spaces and it is rushed. It's hurried up offense. You know, it's an entire department versus an individual relationship. And that's what shows through in your work. So excited to talk more about the work, but then excited to talk about the political tools, which is, of course, one of the things that drew me to you Uh, from a distance. Folks, you are on Better. You are listening to my dear friend Julian Alexander, and we'll be right back with you. Welcome back to Better. We are back with my friend Julian Alexander. And I think this interview is a very unique one. Usually we're talking about different formats of frontline advocacy, or we're talking with people um, who have been through extraordinary struggle and have come through the other side of this. But the influence on our minds, on our eyes, on our hearts, on the way that we interpret things is equally as valuable, if not more so often. And I think that this is a space that doesn't get discovered enough. And so when I first started the show, I said to Julian, I'm having you on the show. It was like, you know, weeks before we even started recording. And so I'm happy to finally be here with you. And I think spending more time in person or really getting to witness your work again has been the perfect time to do this. So I was uh, at the timeout market in New York underneath the Brooklyn Bridge four days ago, looking at the latest installation of the Supremacy Project. And to say powerful would be to do it a grave injustice. Uh, Folks, this will all be linked for you to have a look at. But during the pandemic and after George Floyd's murder, a project was formed. And I would love you to tell us all about that project's formation, its importance, its iterations, its partners, and and what it means to you, Julian. Yeah. So after George Floyd's murder, um, I live in Brooklyn. I live near downtown Brooklyn, which was, you know, a lot of the Barclays Center was a kind of a hub for a lot of protests that was happening um, at that time. People using, you know, collecting to gather and, and support each other and share their emotions and speak out against this, these ongoing problems that we have been living with forever and, and doing their part to bring attention to not only the problem, but um, to try and push things forward and make change. Personally, uh, you know, also I'll say, you know, I have, we're in a pandemic, it was a unique time, but I would turn on the TV and see national news happening right outside my door. And including police brutality among those protesters and people who were there. I was concerned about my son walking out. I was concerned about my family. I was concerned about myself. I also was like, I'm, I made a conscious choice not to go and participate in that, not because I um, disagreed with that, with, with 
anyone's viewpoint, but I just felt like that's not how I was best suited to push things forward. So I decided to make art. Um, the, I took the Supreme logo, which is fascinating to me because as a creative, I am aware of Barbara Kruger's work and I know where the direct influences. Um, I know where that logo came from. Right. Also, one day it struck me, I was walking down the street. I had passed the Supreme store and I saw like this literally blocks long line of people standing out there. And I just walked by, kind of shaking my head, like, wow, like that's interesting. Like it's just, it made an impression on me. And later on that walk, I walked by CVS and I'm looking at the letters and it says CVS Pharmacy and the logo. And I was like, if I take the suffix from here and the prefix from there and put it together, they're both red. I'm like, and they're both simple fonts. One's Futura, one's Helvetica. Like, Mm -hmm. that'll be interesting. So I did it and I put it up on the wall in my studio well before the George Floyd stuff. And people would come in and just see the supremacy lockup and be like, oh, you should make t-shirts. You should do this. You should do that. I'm like, nah, I'm just sitting with it for a while. Right. And then um, in the midst of this stuff, I saw our friend Steve Sweatpants, Mm -hmm. AKA Steve Irby or vice versa, however, whichever one you want to lead with. Sure. Um, I saw some of the work, the images he was shooting um, during the protests, during that moment at Uprising. And I was just like, look, I would love to do something with some of these images. And he was like, cool. And he sent me a link to folders and was like, do what you want with them. And the images he sent me were just complete. There was nothing for me to add to them. So I just, I didn't do anything. I started playing with them and I was like, nah. And then one day I saw this picture that he took after the curfew that was imposed in New York City of these police in riot gear in an empty Times Square. And I was like, this is the one. And then that logo hit me. I was like, that's what it is, because this is what supremacy looks like. I had a moment of being like, you know, I have this frustration of when people are brutalized or killed or become victimized, there's a lot of attention put on the victims versus the victimizer. So I was like, I don't want to show the person who lost their life. They're out there. We see that person. I'm more interested in Derek Chauvin in this moment. Like, what's going to happen to him? Like, where, where is he at? What about all the other people? What about the systems that are in place that allowed this to happen? And oftentimes, a lot of people who um, perpetrate these crimes and this violence to just not have consequences. So in that moment, I was like, I want to show what white supremacy looks like from my point of view. Some people see police officers, they see safety. I look at police officers. I look at the institution of policing and see a threat. Like, I don't, I don't feel like there, you know, there's, my grandfather was a police officer in Jamaica. Like, I, I, I understand the humanity of individuals and, and things that may, that make this a, that can complicate broad statements. But I look at the institution as not something that's here to support me. It's something that is here that I wanted to speak about and show, um, give someone the feeling of looking at this thing that is pointed at you, not to support you, but to that we have to live among and prepare for. And I wanted to make a statement and I wanted to put it up in the world. And I wanted to, so I, I paired the supremacy mark, which is a branding, uh, something I've learned from the power of branding that it gets a response. Um, 
and I wanted to pair it with an image and, and that was it. I didn't want to drive you to a website. I didn't want you to download something. I didn't want you to purchase something. I wanted to just kind of use the tools that I have to encourage people to think and act, like start dialogue and act. And that's how yes. that work came about. I wanted to put it up publicly and that was my mm -hmm. mission. And you and I spoke about it. I had the piece created and I was like, right. where is it going to go? I don't know. I was trying to find a place to get it. And through, um, you know, this work brought me close to other people and someone who's been a crucial part of this work is Khadija Osini. That's right. Um, and Khadija helped facilitate relationships that found a place for this work to go up publicly. And the first place was in Brooklyn. Um, and, and it grew from there. It wasn't intended to be like this project or this thing, but we put something out in the world that resonated. It helped people feel seen. They identified with it. And it became a backdrop for their own personal expression. So mm. um, that is how that work came. Let's through. just stop on that line for a second. A backdrop for their own personal expression is an incredibly powerful thing to think on, right? What is that? And how we see ourselves in brands, how we see ourselves in artwork and that we choose, how we dress ourselves, all of that, what we align with, what people we align with, what clicks and crews we align with, all is that. It truly is like, how can I be the most representative of how I feel in these moments? And that project has been massive on that and some fun ones to pull out. So for those of you unfamiliar with Barbara Kruger's work, the Supremacy or Supreme rather logo is a direct ripoff of this artist. And to think that, let's call it, I don't know, 15 to 18 years later, this brand that has been based off of that and then cool collaboration sold for $2.1 billion dollars. Right. And so when we think about like who has ownership of what and how things move in the world and like what they actually show up as, it's really it's always been interesting to me. And I think what I appreciate about your lens, Julian, is the curiosity and the interest versus the anger and the finger pointing. You have know, worked with a lot of artists and a lot of advocates that are like, uh, let me just throw fire all the time. And I think the delicacy and also the intricacy of the work that you do allows more people to be involved with it because stats are just stats. When we talk about the police state and what it's been doing, you know, three times more likely folks to color to be killed. And I think that's a, a much lower number than the facts. And 400 years of oppression under the exact same shield, these aren't maybes. These, these are facts. Like this is exactly what the state does. And the system itself is entirely oppressive, incredibly racist, and trains you to be violent. So allowing people a space to look at that and then have their own discussions about it is incredibly important. And I just appreciate the way you show up in the world so much as I'm reflecting this. Uh, folks, you are on Better. We're with Julian Alexander. We're just warming up. We're just warming. We're just getting started. Um, you could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with us, and we appreciate you. And we'll be right back. back with better and i feel like that last segment got cut off a little short because i was exuberantly <laughs> expressing my reactions to the work but julian you know please respond to what i just said so you said that the work was a little different and that it didn't have anger and finger pointing if i recall correctly but that work is filled with anger and finger pointing 
Um, and you know what? Finger pointing, I won't say. I'll say, you know, I'm placing responsibility. It's almost like checkmate. Mm. I'm just being like, look, this is what I see. This is my experience. What you going to say about that? Like, what, what, it is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, these are facts. It's not opinion. Like, those police were in riot gear. It doesn't look like safety to me. It looks like violation. Bad. But the anger is, I had so much to say and so few options. Like, if, I don't know what would have happened if I didn't do that. Like, I was going to bust. Like, I, I was experiencing, like, I'm, I'm in my house. I'm hearing helicopters over my head consistently which is people, you know, police monitoring civilians who are protesting. I am mm. turning on the news and seeing a policeman outside of my house press a, push a woman to the curb and call, call her, you know, using profanity at her and fracturing her skull. You know what I mean? Like, this is right outside my door. Right. And I had to do something. Like, I was filled with anger and just feeling like at a point it wasn't a, it wasn't a, a choice. It was like I had to do this for my sanity and survival. I had to use the, to- the tools that I have to speak about what's going on. And, and, you know, as an example for my children, as an example for other people, just like we're in this time, like I'm not, either I can sit here and take it or I can do something. And this was the best thing that I could think to do. But it was filled with anger, frustration, pain, all types of emotion. It's beautiful, man. And I think... Let me take a step back to take a step forward. When we present and use our skill sets really purposefully versus lashing out using those same emotions, we design and we create things that have much more impact. They have much more impact. If we take a moment and say, I have this skill set, I do this thing, I can actually be in service and be proud of this versus taking to the streets. Maybe I'll do both, you know, maybe I'll do both. But I think in the way that you presented it, when you said checkmate, that's exactly how it feels because it is undeniable. And it is also in your face. I mean, you and I talked many times after the work went up and I was like, was it defaced yet? Like, what is it? What's happening with it? You know, I want visual updates. And so what was that process like? First of all, thank you for sharing all of that, because I think it's so critical to also understand where that fire comes from and why. And I saw a video literally yesterday that was sent over to me of a nine-year-old boy getting beaten and arrested, kicked off his bike for potentially stealing a bag of Doritos that he yeah. did not steal by three giant white cops Yeah, yesterday. I saw the image this morning. Right? This is, this is where we still are. And as we accept these institutions or just they're like, we don't have a choice, the fact is we do. We have a choice in all of the ways that we are governed and, and standing up and using our skill sets um, is incredibly important. So what happens during the process of this piece going up? So, you know, my goal was just to get it up. I assume, and and I, I had a conversation with somebody earlier this week where I was telling them, like, you know, we're, we're a little bit removed from the initial artwork going up. But in that climate, in that moment, like when I went over there, I was prepared for, I didn't think like, well, we're just going to put up art, everything's sweet. Like, mm. I was prepared, like, oh, it might go down. Like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. I need to do this. And I was mindful of the environment for myself and the people who were out there with me. Um, so I put it up, but I fully expected that the minute I walked away, something was going to happen to it. Like, there was, somebody's going to write something, somebody's going to take it down, 
or whatever. Um, that didn't happen. Instead, what happened was when we were starting to do it, like we start affecting traffic. Like people are slowing down to see what we're doing. They're honking the horn, throwing their fist up. When some people got out, like, yo, could we take a picture with this? I'm like, yes. <laughs> you know, we see police drive by, like when we're putting that one up and why see them just looking at it, but keep going. So, you know, I felt support immediately, but I also just didn't know how long of a life it would live in the world. Sure. Um, so that first piece, when it caught on, I sent files to a friend of mine um, in Portland, Oregon, um, because that was another city where a lot of stuff was going on. Federal agents weren't identifying themselves and snatching right. people off of the street. We put it up there and my friend put it up. He took pictures. He sent me the photos of it being up. Two days later, I'm like, yo, like, what's the status? And he was like, I haven't been back over there. I'll go, I'll check and send you photos. And it was completely blacked out. Like, they didn't take it down. They didn't write anything. They painted over it like it was never there. Right. Um, but they left other pro po protest posters and things up. So I knew we had something very effective. Mm -hmm. And um, that piece remained untouched in Brooklyn by the Navy Yard until the day Jacob Blake was shot. As soon as he was shot, somebody came and spray painted on the piece. They tagged it and wrote ACAB, which I didn't know what that meant at the time. I was like, who's ACAB? Amazing. <laughs> and I was like, like, is this what? a new writer in Brooklyn? Yeah, I was like, but the tag is kind of whack. Like, I wish it looked better. You know what I mean? But then I looked it up and I became familiar. And, um, you know, so it was, it, it just got this level of respect and deference that I fully appreciated. Mm. And it wasn't until the next piece went up, because these were timed. I would say really quickly, I decided that I wanted to, these pieces were going to speak to how supremacy is implemented in all three branches of our government and the United States government, because I know that I'm talking to the global Canada, audience. We're everywhere right now. First Canada in this conversation. So, sure. um, so there's the judicial branch, which I use the police to represent because that's most people, that's a form of introduction into the ju judicial system. Then I did the executive branch next. And at the time of the first presidential debate um, for the 2020 election, we put up the next piece, which included Mount Rushmore and the same supremacy branding. Mm -hmm. And that one did not live long untouched. Um, we put it up on a Friday, Monday morning, Friday or Saturday, Monday morning, a friend of mine who passes it on the way to work sent me a photo and somebody like they wrote something on it. They glued signs on it. that said like, God bless America. Like this was some stuff that I was like, and someone smeared paint on it, like over the faces and the word supremacy. Um, and we were prepared for it. We printed it on this anti-graffiti material that could be wiped down. But yes. I was just like, this is interesting because first of all, Somebody went home, like, this is an arts and crafts project. You went and made a sign and brought glue yeah, and all yeah. of this sort of stuff. And then brown paint. Nobody's walking around with this brown. And it wasn't like spray paint. It was like a tube of paint. And, and there's surveillance cameras. So I got to see who did this stuff and when. So we cleaned the wall off. And I made wanted posters out of the people with footage, surveillance footage of them. And, Incredible. Um, and just kind of to turn the stuff around. But I realized at that point, and then what happened was it, it escalated and the person who came with the signs later came back with a roller and painted, painted out the word supremacy. So you just have a photo of Mount Rushmore. But I left it that way. I feel like not only this work 
shows one point of view, but the defacement shows that there are people who support and agree with this sort of stuff. And like, particularly living in Brooklyn, people think it's the most liberal thing, but I'm like, people who hold different viewpoints are all around us and it becomes a living dialogue. And I've made a film piece out of, out of the cycle, the life cycle of the work. So, you know, once I make it, it's in the world and it is what it is. Man, all of that engagement is the whole point. Exactly. Right. Art is used in political change. It has this incredibly unique capacity to provide a platform for the whole community to represent their experiences and aspirations. And you get to see it all. It comes on the front street, right? It brings communities together to engage in challenging conversations, period. They may engage it petty. (laughs) They may do art projects. They may just straight up freak out, right? But you know, that was the point. The point was to say, this is still a space that we're in. This is what we need to be discussing and the layers to it, the layers to it and and unraveling it and the conscious decision to leave Rushmore solo, right? Just to to say, this is what side are you on? When we first opened Save On, I wrote on the roller doors, uh, did a graffiti installation with four friends and it said, save our city in a Chicago style font. And it said, save our city, giant. I mean, we're talking 25 feet long. I said nothing else. People lost their minds. They're like, are you saying you're going to save our city? And I was like, no, I just think it's worth saving maybe. I don't know. I wasn't really thinking. I think our city's in shambles. Like, I don't know. And just let it go. And the commentary, you know, there was news articles. People were just like so incensed and then also appreciative at the same time because it's just an opportunity to break out the layers of the conversation. Um, all right. We're still, we're still red hot right here. You're on better with my brother, Julian Alexander. Uh, we will be right back. Keep locked. Welcome back to better. We are here today with my brother, Julian Alexander. Artist predominantly, friend, family member, activist. And we've just been talking about the Supremacy Project, which pulled out so, so many layers in our last segment for radio, because we're definitely not done for the pod. But I wanted to jump into the project that you also did called Fit the Descriptions, because I feel like it dovetails into this part of the conversation really, really well. So tell us about Fit the Description. Tell us about the impetus the impact, all of those things? So Fit the Description is a project that um, I was a part of with my good friends and also one of your, at least one of your good friends. I don't know if you know the others, but Anthony Demby, Mm -hmm. uh, Boywen Gao, and Jahan Manson. Um, It was a project that they had started, they had created independent of me and I met them um, and, and they shared this work with me. What it was, was, um, it's, spe- it specifically was created to help highlight a sense of connection between black males specifically on either side of law enforcement, either mm. men who worked in law enforcement or those who had been in the system and were affected or had some sort of interactions with law enforcement. And it, it was aimed at just kind of, you know, with the black, with the civilians, it was aimed at showing 
um, you know, speaking about what some of their interactions have been. And, they, you know, some it was like positive things. I was in this scenario and, and this officer gave me relief. And some it was like, look, I had this negative experience. And that, in some instances, changed to I wanted to be a part of law enforcement to make sure that people didn't have those same interactions I had. I wanted to get, make it, get in there and make a difference. So um, those who were in law enforcement, whether, you know, whether they were police officers or correction officers or whatever it may be, they spoke about why they chose to be in that role and the responsibility they felt um, they wanted to carry to change uh, relationships and dynamics. So the project existed prior to me. It was filmed one-on-one sit-down interviews between a civilian and a police officer. And I helped to uh, create visuals to support the project, the key art for it. And I also became a part of workshopping some events and screenings and, and facilitating some conversations with this group of people, uh, this incredible group of friends that I worked with on the project. No question. Special shout out to the one and only Anthony Demby. We love you, dude. And thinking about the way that the visual representation of that is, let me paint the picture, the way that I perceived it from witnessing it street level, which is there's two images, two very distinct images of two black men. Neither is identified. One is a police officer. One is not. Right. And so to, to have the words looped together, the way that I saw it laid out was a singular image a dual image, a singular image, and a dual image. So you got the power of the larger images, and then the way that you did the font work, it actually tied the entire thing together in a train car way. So your eyes continued to move through it. And what it represented for me, at least, was the impossible task of actually being able to do these IDs. That there's no way. That there's no way. And we know how ridiculous this is already, right? And so when we have, you know, Giuliani's stop, frisk, and search nonsense, like all of these other things, that all came rushing back for me watching this, which is period. If you are a person of color, this is going to be a problem for you. Not maybe, it just is. And so the fact that the institution is spoken to directly in that way, and no matter what color you are watching and reading and experiencing this thing, you are viscerally, viscerally affected and pulled into a place of inquisition. And that's the, that's the job, right? First of all, you got it exactly right. That is what, that's, that was the goal. The only two things I'll point out is, one is that the, the men in the images, it was important to me to have them facing, they, they are facing opposite directions, which, mm underlines the message that we're not seeing eye to eye on how things are. Um, and ironically or paradoxically, whatever, whichever word is right, those men in that campaign, in that poster, are father and son. What? So, yeah, they're father and son. <laughs> Yo, what? Yeah, the father is the police officer. Um, and what I wanted to do is, so they're looking in opposite directions, but as you pointed out, the type works in a way where the image, it can, you can have a poster with one of them and you can read the whole title, but when you put them side by side, it connects. So there's a connection between these two, whether they see eye to eye or not, they're linked, period. And that was, you know, that was the goal and objective of that work. I don't like. What's the word after quintuple entendre? Like, what do we say? What 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 do we even say? After, like, what are we talking about right now, man? Like, I how do I know you this well and Ant for that matter, and not know that 
how beautiful symbolically there's so many layers. And, uh, you know, I think this is the beauty of speaking through art to quote you. This is it. Like when you step up to something and thank you for defining earlier when we talked about being a designer and being an artist, there is zero question when we talk in this way what the difference is, right? When we step into a gallery and we look at a piece that is postmodernist, whatever it may be, and we are looking for the layers and we are looking for the intentionality, I believe, and this is just the way that I digest art, that using graphical tools and typography has so much more of the ability, particularly in the political realm that we're in, in the sphere that we're in, to have more relatable impact and have more pressure-filled impact than classical painted art. It's just, just the way I feel about it personally. And so I think that's why your work continues to be so incredibly important. And so while we're on that, we've got a couple minutes left for our friends on the radio who undoubtedly want to hear the rest of this conversation. So we'll tune in wherever they digest podcasts. And we thank you for your time already. What happens next for Julian Alexander? What are you working on right now that you're most excited about? So right now I am in the position of just the Supremacy Project has created avenues and open doors for me. By expressing myself and using my voice, people have, I've gained all types of support and resources to go further in my own personal art practice. So I'm, ste- I'm taking a moment of stepping away from client work to just focus on building up my own work, getting sharper, figuring out what I want to say, not only as it relates to in- injustice, but just what I, whatever it is I want to get out of my system. There's many things that I've, throughout the years, I've always worked on personal work, maybe not with great frequency, but I've done things that I've just kept to myself. I don't show them to anyone. I'm not interested in putting them in the world. But now I'm just like, let me just build up a body of work and see what I can do, what life would look like if I just really take this momentum that I've gained to this point and really, really focus on pushing myself and growing. So that's where I'm at at this moment is exploring my creativity. Oh, as a friend and a fan of the work that you do through art, that's an incredibly exciting pivot. And to give that scope, folks, Julian is in a high demand from big companies from Nike to Target, and it, it goes on and on and on. So to say that I am choosing to bring what's inside me out is a gift to all of us ultimately. So I appreciate you making that choice very much and love you. And thank you for being here today. Love you too, man. Thank you. I appreciate you. Yes. Yes. So if you've been tuned in on the radio, this is better. I am your host, Mark Brand. As always, we appreciate your time. And it's been so fun to hold this space around this exploration. I hope it has evoked emotions in you that you will chase down the work see what it means to you and share that with us. If you are on the podcast, we I think we just warmed up. So we're about to dive in. This has been Better. I'm Mark Brand with my guest, Julie Alexander. Stay safe out there. Folks, if you are listening uh, on the podcast, welcome. Welcome home. Welcome back to it. Julie and I literally get to have these conversations, you know, every couple of weeks. And today I've learned a lot more than I expected that I I would. You know, I think that I we've been friends long enough that I didn't think that I would hear new fire from you. And, you know, not only did I I hear it, I felt it too. In particularly, what I want to dig into now is around race and family. 
and as a father of an artist, it may be multiples, you know, your daughter and your son are incredibly pivotal in your life. What does it look like as a dad, particularly in this time, to to just be that father and to to do these projects and how do you keep them safe? Um you know, my, my children are 23 and 19. So my son, you know, they're both adults legally. Like I would, I would talk to my children and explain to them that there's a difference um, between adulthood and manhood or womanhood. You know what I mean? Like adulthood is like a legal term. Like you, you're 18, you're an adult. You know what right. I mean? But being a man or woman has more to do with managing responsibility, being reliable, a number of things. But, you know, so all of that is to say that they they navigate the world independently now. We're relying on what they what, what has been taught to them and, and trust them to, you know, do their part to um, be safe, but also be them full selves. I don't want my kids... I like to try and live, I want them to leave, live, excuse me, lead lives where they are free to be who they, be their, be their full selves. Right. And, you know, so it's, you know, we're at a point where they're older, but I'm not worry free. You know what I mean? I'm not like, yo, they're good. They're grown. You know what I mean? I still want them to just be able to be safe. But also with my son, who, you know, both of my children are creative thinkers, but my son is an artist, a visual artist. Mm. And... <clears throat> There are things that I gather from our conversation or the beauty of his character, but I see his artwork and I'm like, he's good. Like he, he sees people, he understands the world in a certain way. Like I know how to read art and interpret that. You know what I mean? And this confirmation, I'm like, I look at his artwork and I'm like, he is all right and he's going to be all right. And not in the sense of being trouble free, but I can see his character through his work. You know what I mean? And I, and I think, you know, so all of that is to say, um, you know, I try to, uh, it's been important to me to talk to them, to show them who I am, um, to try and learn who they are. And also as part of showing them who I am, it's like, I've made horrible mistakes as a human being and as a parent, and I will make more, but I try and be able to tell them that and share with that and help them understand um, the love that I have and, and also let them know that no matter what, I will be here. Mm, critical, critical communication. And just briefly, shout out Julian Alexander Jr. or Snakebone on Instagram, one of my favorite artists and follows out there. Super special, incredibly talented. And so there's two things I want to dig into on your last sentiment there. One is you deal with so much external criticism in evaluation. That's the profession. And I just heard personal evaluation. I wouldn't say criticism. I think that's the wrong word. Awareness around failure mm -hmm. and what that looks like. And so from a professional and personal lens, you've spent your whole life that way. You were dad early. You know, you were doing art early. Yeah. So everybody's always had an opinion. Mm -hmm. Always. So how do you, and this I think is, you know, the tool that I really wanted to share and get to today is how do you manage that and how do, how can we manage that better? So for me, um, <clears throat> I'm very used to criticism. I think the only criticism that counts is constructive criticism, because if it's not constructive, I have no use for it. Um, 
And constructive criticism is where I think there's opportunities to grow or challenge or push back or think critically, you know? So, um, and, and also I think it, it shows that openness to criticism that has come through my professional life is also why I have kept my personal work so private and disconnected. Cause I'm like, I don't care what you think. You think it should be read? That's your business. It's not going to be read. You know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I need to keep certain things for myself. And, and also it's why I even spoke about the need to not do certain client work, do client work for a certain period of time. If not indefinitely, we'll see what happens. And it's because I can't be in both spaces. I can't be open for this collaboration and closed off and like finding my voice at the same time. I'm, I'm kind of like either or. Um, I find the need. And, it, and, you know, professionally, I'm choosing in an extreme, but even in my, you know, the way I navigate the world, it's like, yo, there's time and space for this, and I'm cool with this, and there's time and space where I just need to be alone with my thoughts. Maybe maybe I'm more tuned into that, like, growing up as an only child, you know what I mean? I, nice. I, you know, and I'm reading something right now that's talking about um, the difference between loneliness and solitude, mm. and solitude is really important to me for me, um, you know, um, and I'm, I'm coming to understand that it's something that I felt I needed at a point. It's something that I've ran away from at times too, but solitude has fueled my practice and my, my understanding of critique in many ways. I love that. And one of the key points of our work and your work with us as a better life foundation is that we know that isolation is the single biggest cause of addiction and instability. Solitude is by design. I, I love, I need to walk in the forest. I need to have my phone away. I need to not have external influences on the way that I am processing things. Yeah. And, and particularly in this time, but also I need to not be alone or lonely. I have to have both of those things simultaneously. I did a, I'm in Toronto recording today. Mm-hmm. And I did a talk here a few years ago at a, a food and beverage conference for all intents and purposes. It was like small batch suppliers and people who are really trying to make F and B a better place. So I got to do a, a keynote uh, closing one of the days. And as I spent the first two days at the conference, I was just watching how big addiction was hitting people. As a sober person now five years with multiple relapses, you know, watching the way that it dictates a lot of the way that we that we manage ourselves. I completely changed my talk at the last minute and I got on stage and I put up a slide and it said, do you ever get lonely? And the organizers were like, what the fuck is going on right now? <laughs> and I, I just put my hand up and I said, I do. And I just let it be quiet for a while. And every single person in the audience put their hand up. And I was like, we don't like to admit that. And we surround ourselves consistently maybe with people that aren't good for us with, with time and things that aren't great for us because we're so afraid of being alone. But when you can master all of the things that have been inside you that make you afraid to be alone, right? You can process those things. Solitude is one of the greatest gifts. They're very, very different, right? Very different. Yeah, man. So what does the process look like for you these days? You know, obviously I'm hearing a lot about reflection, a lot about time, a lot about awareness, but when you're putting something together and what feels like a body of work that's going to be exhibited, 
What's the process look like for you? So I'm working on an exhibit right now. And it is, I don't want to say chaotic. It is one where um, I'm figuring it out, man. I'm figuring it out. I don't know. I think it'll look different every time. There are certain standard things like, I'm, you know, understanding what I want to say, what's important to me, and then figuring out how to execute on that and fighting myself or, you know, I had a conversation yesterday with Khadijah, who I mentioned, and she, you know, had this thought, we got the, we are like, this exhibit's going to be this way. And I started out that way and I quickly abandoned the very thing I said I wanted to do. I started doing it a little bit different because the space was very different because the space was different. And, and she, she checked me on it. Like she was just like, I had this idea. She didn't, she did it very skillfully because it didn't feel like she checked me, but she absolutely checked me. And I'm cool with that. It was, it was what I needed. And it got me right back to where I first started and I felt the confidence and all of that. So the thing is, like, it's, it's different every time. But what I am trying to do, I'm figuring out my new processes. Like, I, I learned that automatically, like, now that I'm, I'm doing my own artwork, I'm like, I don't have my computer with me all the time. I'm not really, my email... I might get back to you right away on the email, but I might not see it for two days because I'm over here like doing something else, just making things and, and being disconnected. So I'm trying to find my processes right now. All of my days are different and I'm just open to um, not doing what I've done, but doing mm. what I want to do or doing, just seeing what can be. You know what I mean? Because if, if I keep doing the same things, I keep getting the same results. I'm trying to do something very, very different at this point. So it's, it's a time of discovery is the answer to that. Yo, I think if I keep doing the same things, I keep, I'll get the same results. It's something that we all know mm -hmm. in our reptilian brains, but it's not something we all practice, right? We're like, I want to live a better, healthier life. I want to be you know, better at X, Y, or Z, but we don't change our consumption. We don't change our interaction. We're like, everything but that. Like I'm still yeah. going to be on Instagram for two hours a day, yeah. you know. Like I'm still gonna I'm still gonna continue the same patterns that make me feel slightly unwell or whatever that may be, or won't allow me to proceed to the next part of my truth. And I think, you know, there's a, the the old trope is, you know, when you change, that a lot of the people around you um, will either accept that or they will not, yeah, uh, because they become comfortable with the skin that you're in. And as somebody who has changed personally you know, dozens of times a quarter, I change the way that I act in, in the way that even I speak on certain things, as we learn, you're consistently a work in progress. So I just appreciate you centering that not only you like taking that time, turning down remuneration, turning down contracts that would give you more physical wealth, like actual money, but you're saying, I'm also going to change the way my process works, even though I know this has worked for me for 30 years, I'm going to change all of that. And consistently look at the way that I can develop. And I think that gives other people permission. I think it gives them, you know, the ability to then say, well, what's the worst that could happen? Thank you, man. And, you know, hearing you put it that way, it sounds like, you know, it's very clunky. I get things wrong. I don't get it all right. It's not all smooth. But I'm just like, yo, I'm gonna be, I'll be all right. Like, I have to do this. Like, I'm out of, you know, this probably is going to sound very cheesy, but something that I have been paying attention to for a little bit is just the changes that things go through. And I look at caterpillars. I was looking at something one day. I was like, does a caterpillar know that it's going to be a butterfly? Mm -hmm. Does a butterfly know that it was once a caterpillar? 
You know what I mean? Like, is there cognition there? Yeah, and I read some stuff because I was like, you know, the trusty internet. So this could be a hundred percent fact or complete bullshit. But it says they don't think that they recognize. They don't know because caterpillars are low, butterflies are higher. Like they don't even feel like they occupy the same space to see each other. So, you know, my thing is, as I go to change, like, you know, look, you change one thing, you change everything. Mm. And, and sometimes I'm like, yo, this is what I'm doing and I'm headstrong and I'm stuck. And I'm like, this is what it, this is absolutely what it has to be. And sometimes I'm like, yo, like, I don't know, like, I'm scared of what I'm going to lose. I'm scared of what this change looks like. But, you know, age, you know, I, I don't complain about getting older because I have so many friends that aren't here. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to con- complain about turning 48 when I know somebody who never saw 19 yeah. or 15 yeah. or 45. You know what I mean? So, but I also just feel like if I'm lucky, I'm in the middle of my life. Yeah. So what do I want to do with the rest of the time that I have left? I want to be, I want to be who I want to be. I want to reach my potential. And then, you know, I'm, I'm never, my goal is to never reach my dreams you know i'm gonna reach this one and then i'm gonna set another one and you just keep moving i am going to continue moving the goalposts but i want to you know i need to continue to make progress but it doesn't feel smooth but i'm just trying to be brave enough to take the steps that are necessary to push myself forward and beyond what i'm comfortable with i mean i just want to throw the mic off the table now there's nothing else to say (laughs) i mean that last entire from the analogous portion all the way through is that's what we should all be aspiring to. You know, I think there's a couple of, you know, it's, it's been said in many adages, but like you reach the peak of one mountain just to realize you're at the base of another. Yes. And that's, that's a consistent thread. If you are pushing yourself to towards greatness is the wrong word, you know, towards the exploration of, of yourself, of, of what's possible, particularly when you find the peace of justice and you know that you are being helpful and propelling something forward, whether that be a message or food sovereignty or, you know, the fight to keep cetaceans wild, like whatever that may be, there needs to be people in the fight. And yeah. when you, when you say to my, when you and I are discussing, you're like, I'm not going to take this next corporate contract because the work that I'm doing as an artist is critically important. I mean, I'm like a bobblehead on a bumpy road. You know what I mean? I'm like, that part. <laughs> yes, please. You know, I please for us. So I love that, man. And I would be remiss as a, as a hip-hop fan, you know, as a lifelong rap fan to not dig into some of this stuff, That's right? Good. Like you and I, the first time we ever met, we met in, I think it was in Fort Greene. We hung out in the back of this. Nope. It wasn't Fort Greene? It was a Clinton No, Hill. it was in Bear. It was in... It was at Playlist Retreat. Oh, yo, okay. So let me correct myself. That was after we bonded and we're spending one-on-one time. Yes, 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 yes. So after we had been, and shout out to Playlist Retreat, shout out Big Brother Jazzy Jeff, shout out Aunt Demby. The Playlist Retreat is going to get a shout right here, for real, for real, which is it has um, been so critical in the growth and the maturation and also the community amalgamation of hip hop, funk, soul, and other artists from the genres and having a community that they can lean on. Julian and I were invited by our friend Aunt Demby and by Jazzy Jeff to join at Jeff's house in 2019. And both of our roles was as coach mentors. And I did a closing keynote around um, mental health and a bunch of other things with our heroes. 
yes. with our straight up heroes. Rest in peace, Bismarcky. You know, Dela, Red Man, Masego, like all of the people in there, egoless, working together to try and figure out a better way to propel their art and also to become better people. So giving that scope, that's where Julian and I were together, um, an honor that will stay with both of us forever. But our first one-on-one time, <laughs> was it in Fort Greene or was it in... Yes. It wasn't for green. green. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so we sat in the back of um, of a cafe, a restaurant, and had a little bite to eat. And you talked about um, your work with J. Rue the Damager. And what, like, I'm flipping out. I'm slapping the table because, you know, 12-year-old Mark was a very, very big fan of J. Rue the Damager, um, as was my best friend um, in the world. And so you started us off earlier by saying, I knew that somebody was making those covers and it was going to be me. So what covers did you make? What artists did you work with? What, like, what was it like? What were the craziest things that happened? Craziest thing. So I'm horrible with naming the names of what I've done just because I forget, not because of lack of importance, but just like my cup is full. You know what I mean? Like it just runs over. I can't hold anymore. For me, I get reminded, but you know, I'll say this, I've worked with some seminal artists and people who, whether or not they were critically acclaimed and some definitely were, but people who mattered to me and were a part of the culture that shaped me. And I've been able to go outside of that as well. So from J. Rue, that's the first album package that I was like, yo, it, it might be I think that's the second album I did. The first one was for this group named Raw Breed. Okay. And it was this album called Raw Instinct, which I think was their second album, but it didn't come out until much later. Like I found it, like I saw it pop up on the internet like recently. I was like, oh, that came out? Because it definitely didn't come out when I did it in the 90s. Right. Um, But I've had this ability to, you know, I worked at, I interned at Def Jam. Um, I interned at Atlantic Records right. and became got my first job while I was there, while I was still in school. So I started going to school at night so I could take this junior designer job or art director for advertising, I think, was the position. So I've, I've kind of come through the ranks. I went to Sony where I was a create. I became I left there as a design director for Sony Urban Music. Um, I was I've been fortunate in, enough to work on like. You know, so from you mentioned Get Rich or Die Trying, I did everything G-Unit up until probably Lloyd Banks' second album. Um, so the first two G-Unit albums, Straight Out of Cashville, Buck the World, uh, Curtis, The Massacre, uh, Hunger for More, Thoughts Oof. of the Predicate Felon. I've done some albums for Eminem, from whether it be Encore to Relapse to Refill to all sorts of things, man. I did the Games documentary album. These are some of the ones that people Ooh. react to when they, you know, so I'm not telling you necessarily my favorites, more so things that just are top of mind because they come up in conversation. But as you said, J. Rue, that was something I worked with Dan, uh, Daniel Hastings, uh, very important and critical photographer in the realm of this period and a strong influence on my life. He saw potential in me and took me under his wing. Shout out to Eddie Hastings. Yeah, he shot the return to the 36 Chambers. He shot um, only built for Cuban links. And I became like one of his assistants on set. So I would be on set for the photo shoots and then I would design these packages. And I I literally, I still have the check he gave me for the J-Rule. 
album is a very meager check. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't about the money, man. And it was just like this thing, you know, he gave, he saw something in me and gave me opportunity and nurtured me. That's my brother, my close, close friend. Um, but also that's the hip hop stuff. I've worked on certain things for Destiny's Child, done certain singles or the, the J-Lo logo for Jennifer Lopez. I created that. I've done albums for her. One thing that comes up as well that I'm extremely proud of, not because of the accolade, but because you know, I think that my art gets to be a contribution to other people's art and part of their legacy. So I, I won a Grammy for the art direction and design of a Miles Davis box set. Mm-hmm. I also have worked with people as varied as Kay Slay, rest in peace, who passed away this week. Um, and, and just you know, I have, a, I have a notebook that has a Dez tag in it because he so I could scan it and put it in the album package. But, you know, my my life has brought me to places and put me in contact with people who inspire me and trust me to to contribute to contribute to their art. So Yeah. I feel like Forrest Gump. You know what I mean? I just get to be I get to be in some incredible scenarios. I'm like, yo, like if I had told the young me, I'd be like, nah, like you're crazy. (laughs) So very, very fortunate. Yeah, man. I'm fortunate. And also, you know, I hear a lot of our guests and a lot of our friends talk about the luck, right? And people being like the luck of. So Strombo, the interview, I was listening to it for the first time back three days ago. And he talks about the incredible luck of his life. Mm -hmm. And then in the same breath, he says, for five straight years, every single day, he went into a radio booth and recorded a show that would never go to air. That's not luck. Dedication. (laughs) What do you mean lucky? So when you got your break, you were exceptional at your craft? Like there's nothing lucky about that. And sure, you might have been lucky to get the the chance to do it. But I think it's really interesting the way that we look at our own lives and our own work ethic and also the way that we've represented ourselves and the integrity that you carry yourself with and the execution of the work. The work matters, right? To your point, like I – I try not to use the word lucky and I thought of it this way, like good luck is winning the lotto. Bad luck is getting struck by lightning. Like these are things that you didn't create that it just happened to you. you know what I mean? like, totally. The randomness work, of life. Yeah. Like if you, you work, you know, you put in the work like, and, and you get the rewards, you're fortunate is the word that, you know, we've been using. So it's just like, fortunate is not an accident. It's like you've put in the work and it worked out because you can put in the work and it not work out. Yes. For a number of reasons, it, it's you know so so the things that feel like good luck that are a result of hard work, I just I'm like you you're fortunate. Hundred percent, I love that frame a lot, man. And so, look, it's been a blast. There's a hundred more things we could talk about, but is there anything that's a top of mind for you that you want to dig into? Um. I just say that, you know, like, no, it's just, it's, it's gratitude, man. Like, I appreciate the fact that we have this conversation, uh, have this space to do this and to share what we do anyway. And, you know, like, I appreciate these are conversations that you and I have. And you have this platform and you chose to share it with me. I think that is a gift that you're giving to me. And I just want to say thank you for it. Man, it's my absolute pleasure. And the gift passes directly through me as only a space holder and a conduit to the people out there who are listening to these lessons. 
I think, you know, in closing, you said this might sound corny. And I've been thinking a lot, a lot about my own age, about my own lifespan, about my own health, all of those things. Um, As I get older and I have some pre-existing conditions that make my life challenging, I think about my grandparents a lot. And I remember my grandfather, my great-grandfather handed me a card on my birthday. I think I was 18 or 19. And he had dementia conveniently. I say that, you know what I mean? He was playful. He was a trickster. Um, and he handed me a card. And in it, there's a hardware store here in Canada called Canadian Tire. And when you buy stuff, they give you this money that's Canadian Tire money. And he had slipped into the card, I want to say like 50 cents, you know, of worth of Canadian. So nothing as like a, as a gift. And it's in front of all of my friends. And he hands it to me. And I open it and it was like, I love you very much. And this 50 cents. And he's waiting for my reaction to him. And I think about the playfulness and I think about the wisdom and the power in him knowing that that emotion and this memory would always stick with me about him. And while that may read, if we were writing it for like a screenplay as corny, I think that there's a real wisdom that comes with age and the simplicity of evoking emotion in others that is so... It's understated, you know. I think we spend a lot of the middle of our life being incredibly complex. And a lot of it for no fucking reason. Like we get we get real excited about the complexity of the way we present ourselves because we believe it separates us and makes us unique. When ultimately, we're just here to be loved, to love, and to take care of each other. And so I, I've always appreciated that also about the way that you show up in the work. Um, Thank you. And I don't, I don't find anything that you say corny pretty much ever, man. Um, yeah, can I, can I share one other thing with you? Cause it's just what you just shared just reminds please, me of it. So please. you can see this people listening can't, but over my shoulder, that image that I'm pointing to, mm-hmm. that's my grandmother at 18 years old. Wow. And, um, you know, one of the things that I'm working on in my, I'm, I'm doing some of my work to exercise to do another project I have in mind, which is just really researching my family, like who I come from. Yes. Like the sac- because as I get older, I recognize the sacrifices they've made to make my life possible. I've understood. I now see things at, at, at this age that I didn't, couldn't see or was uninterested in when I was younger right. and about like my mother's strength and character or, you know, my father, like certain things that I didn't hear come out of his mouth. I've learned how to see him as a more full human being um, in his, after his death and and have just a different appreciation for um, what he did right and a different level of compassion for what, um, what I, what I didn't feel was right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So personally, in my experience, um, and and the point is, um, when you spoke about your grandfather, I had this thing I, I mentioned before that my family is, you know, my family's from Jamaica, my mother's side of the family, and that's the side of the family that I spent all my time with. Culturally, I am Jamaican. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, I once asked my grandmother, you know, and it's in the context of what I was doing with you. I had an experience where I was just like, I'm looking at the things of this country and the things that struggle I struggle with and, and, and haven't been impacted by. And I asked my grandmother one day, and I had to be like in college and probably like 20 years old. I'm like, why'd you come here? You know what I mean? I'm like, you lived in a place where everybody's black. You know what I mean? Like you don't have these racial dynamics that For real. are heavy. You know what I mean? And 
And just for a number of reasons, I'm like, you know, y'all were doing all right there. You had your partner, you had your children, you had all of this stuff. Why'd you leave? And my grandmother is, she had a wisdom, but she's not the type to be like, let me tell you a story. Like she's short on words. And she just looked at me and she was like, for you. Like that was her answer. And I was like, I'm like, that was years before I was built. But I didn't say a porn. I didn't say anything about it. And I just remember it. Like I remember it clear as day. And, And that's the thing that, you know, you know, you just speaking about your grandfather reminded me of that story. And I think that that's the sort of stuff that, and, and again, speaking about being fortunate, mm-hmm. you know, like the, the people who sacrificed before us to make, a, make my life possible. And I live here amongst all of these things that I speak out about, but I'm able to um, live the life that I live and use my voice to bring attention to what I think is wrong and try and correct those things. So, you know. I just, you know, where I'm going with this energy is to try and carry all of that stuff forward and make make these days count, man. So Yeah. And your son just right after you will stand on the shoulders. We know he's this. A way, he's a way better artist now. <laughs> he's dope as I'm hell. I'm not even I'm not bullshitting. Like <laughs> I'm not even talking about at his age. Like he's clip way better than I was at his age. Right. But I just think, you know, he had there's something in him that is special and and I love watching him discover it and unleash it. And, yeah, man. And also in the way that he chooses to do it, man. Like he, yeah. he's very independent. He's like, yo, I'm just doing my thing. Like he doesn't ask me anything. I'm I'm happy to show up for him and be here, but I see him wanting to do it his own way. And it's beautiful, man. He has a solo show coming up uh, later this month in Brooklyn. I can't wait That's to see it. where he's going to uh, share with the world. Unleash yeah, no <laughs> question, man. I, 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 we can feel the, the pride teeming through. And I think, you know, I want to reflect on your reflection of my reflection of the reflection because that's what good conversations do, which is your grandmother's answer is the fire, right? So our job, my job, your job, the people that are adjacent to us job is not to necessarily solve the issues that we're passionate about. It's to continue to normalize the conversation and to take direct action against it. And so when we say poverty is an act of violence, it is. It's it's a chosen societal act of violence. Nobody needs to be without anything. We have more than enough for everybody five times over on this whole planet. But we choose a different system. And so when I say that now, we can all kind of nod. When I started saying it 10 years ago, everybody looked at me like, you know, I had, had one too many Manhattans. And we, I only know this because my parents come from a place of poverty and they come from a place where they didn't have a lot and they fought really hard to make sure that I did, not with the understanding that I was going to take it full circle. And I was like, well, let me go all the way back because nobody should ever have to be that way. Nobody should ever have to feel that way. Nobody should ever believe that the police are their number one enemy. Nobody should ever have to believe that the government doesn't serve them, but we know it doesn't. And so our, our missions in our life is to continue to normalize this fight so that the folks that come after us and the folks that we came after, we can see the difference just in 50, 60 years, man. It's, it's monumental. And while it's not fast enough at all, it's progress. And it's, it's really, really important. Um, man, thank you for spending this time with me today. I, uh, as always in our conversations, 
just leaves me wanting more. And we will definitely have you back uh, as the the artist exhibition comes fully formed. Um, all I know is that the world is not ready for it. Um, but again, thank you, brother. Love you. And thanks for spending time with us today. Yeah, you too, man. Thank you. Folks, thank you for being with us today. I've been with my guest, Julian Alexander. This has been Better. I am your host, Mark Brand. And all the links to his work will be in the bio. Make sure to follow and support all of your local artists. But definitely dig into this one.